Let's talk about your next patient. This is a 77-year-old female who presented initially with a seizure in February 2007 while she was on vacation in Florida. And still in Florida, she was worked up. Scans revealed a 3.2-centimeter right parietal mass and a small 7-millimeter cerebellar mass in the brain. And she had resection of the parietal mass, which revealed an adenocarcinoma. Further workup revealed a 2-centimeter right upper lobe mass with irregular margins suggesting a primary tumor, but no significant mediastinal adenopathy, and a bone scan showed metastases in the lower spine and sacrum. And her smoking history? She had a minimal smoking history, very little, and she had quit 40 years ago. So then what? It turned out that I knew this lady, partly professionally, partly a little bit socially. She was married to a patient that I treated in 1980 for Hodgkin's disease, and I've seen him since for other reasons as well. And we used to see them at the theater. They had seats right behind us, so we'd all say hello and that sort of thing. So I had a sense of her, and you know, we talked about this and what to do. I was impressed by the fact that she had a very small smoking history and that she was 77, and so I decided to start her on erlotinib. And this was 2007, and I did not get an EGFR mutation at that time. And in addition, I have to say that I don't have the blocks. Her tumor is in Florida, and we have not pursued getting an EGFR mutation. But at that time, I just empirically started her on erlotinib. So just thinking back, Ron, you were talking about the IPAS data and how it's really shifted the whole paradigm of first-line therapy. I mean, would you have tried to get the tissue from Florida? I mean, or would, you know, practically speaking, would it change what you're going to do? Well, in February 2007, I would have done what Bob did. I would have started her on Erlotinib. I would have followed her very closely because of my research interest. The day that I consulted with her, I would have given her the prescription for Erlotinib and have her sign a form so that I could get her tissue and her cell blocks from Florida to do some subsequent studies on. What we know from IPASS is that patients like this who are basically non-smokers, former light smokers in the distant past with adenocarcinoma, who were mutation negative, who received gefidinib in the IPAS study, that 50% of them had progression of their cancer within six weeks of starting gefidinib and had to be crossed over pretty quickly to chemotherapy. On the other hand, the mutation positive group, you know, had an objective response rate of over 70%. There was only a 1% objective response rate in the mutation negative group, despite all of these good demographic factors, female, adeno, non-smoker, et cetera. So I would have done what Bob did, and this woman enjoyed a two-and-a-half-year response to erlotinib. Wow. How did she do in the erlotinib in terms of side effects and toxicity? I think she did very well. She had the rash, and we had to manage that frequently, but you know, she got used to it, and it became simply you know part of her life and what she did. And, and I don't think it significantly affected the quality of her life. Can you talk a little bit more about when the rash appeared, what it was like, and what you did about it? It appeared fairly quickly. You know, this is going back three years now, so I don't remember exactly. But it appeared fairly quickly. Of course, I had warned her about it. And we routinely start patients on emollients and tell them to put it all over the place and use it freely. Her rash never got to be really severe. It never got to the point where... 
I had to do anything else for it. It was a real acneiform type of rash, you know, the classic erlotinib rash. Just individual lesions on the arms, on the trunk a little bit, occasionally on the face, but there were no areas of great coalescence or severe erythema, that sort of thing. So it didn't require any great skill at management. And Ron, how do you approach prevention and treatment of dermatologic problems with erlotinib? Well, we try to weather patients through that critical first month because we know that skin develops a tolerance to erlotinib going into that second month. So that first month, you know, the second, third, fourth, fifth weeks are usually the critical weeks. So as Bob indicated, we recommend that they use moisturizing lotions. They should be alcohol-free. Alcohol-free lotions are hard to find, by the way, because the alcohol will dry the skin out even more and sometimes will exacerbate the rash. We will give patients clindamycin gel to apply to their skin a couple of times a day if they develop furunculosis. We use minocycline, 100 milligrams twice a day. Usually a five-day course is all we need to also help with the furunculosis. We advise patients regarding the use of sunblock or you know, long-sleeve cotton clothing and hats because erlotinib is a sun sensitizer. So it's critical to get through that first month and usually things are much better. There are patients that just won't tolerate the 150 milligram starting dose very well. And when that happens, we do go down, we'll take a couple of days off, maybe a week off in some extreme cases to let the blood level drop down and reinitiate at 100 milligrams per day. And what exactly happened to her tumor in various locations, Bob? Well, we monitor her lung tumor carefully and it initially did shrink. I can't recall if it actually reached a technical partial remission, but it was clearly smaller on the first few CT scans and then stabilized. And eventually she progressed within the last few months. Now, where did she progress and did she progress in the brain? She does have another lesion. Actually, I don't remember. Ron may remember. She did have another lesion in the brain. I can't remember if we gamma knifed that yet or not. But the main progression was in the bone in T1, she developed a bone lesion that expanded and wrapped around, uh, didn't involve the spinal cord, but wrapped around the cord. And she presented with some peculiar symptoms in both arms of some discomfort, some swelling in the left arm. And I wasn't quite sure what was going on. She then developed some discomfort in her neck, and I decided to do an MRI, and we discovered that lesion, which is presently being radiated. And what about systemic therapy? She just had the allotment stopped? We stopped the allotinib. This is not that long ago. We stopped the allotinib, and I have not started her on systemic therapy as of yet. What are you thinking about? I would probably start her on carbopemetrexid plus minus bevacizumab at this point. What was the two and a half years like that she was on the allotinib? What was her quality of life? What was she doing? Quality of life was quite good. Really, the only thing that bothered her at all, and I don't think it bothered her that much, was her skin rash. You know, when patients come in the office and you ask them, you know, what's bothering you, they tell you, well, this rash is bothering me. But I didn't get the impression that it bothered her most of the time. So she was doing quite well. No shortness of breath, headaches, pain, etc. What would you be thinking about, Ron, in terms of, of course, it's going to depend on her clinical situation in terms of potential, you know, future therapies for her? Well, at my center, you know, I would be interested in finding a lesion that could be rebiopsied. She most certainly 
had a cancer that contained an EGFR mutation. 60% of patients who have this kind of good prolonged response to erlotinib, when they relapse, will have the T790M mutation, for which we've got some new EGFR-targeted drugs that are quite promising we'd be interested in testing. Are you talking about the, quote, irreversible EGFR inhibitors? Exactly. And what do we know about that at this point, particularly in the patient who has a tumor resistant to erlotinib? Well, clinically, we don't know anything yet. The trials are ongoing. The preclinical data shows that these irreversible inhibitors are effective in cell lines, at least, that have exon 20 mutations, including the T790M mutation. So that remains to be established in humans. What about the responsiveness of brain mets to systemic therapy, Ron, particularly in the mutation-positive patient? Yeah, one of the things we're seeing is that patients who have these kinds of prolonged responses, that the brain remains the sanctuary site, and so the frequency of brain relapse is not uncommon, and meningeal carcinomatosis is not uncommon, especially in these patients who present with brain metastases initially. I've got a couple of anecdotal cases now where I've taken patients with brain mets that have recurred after whole brain radiation therapy who continue to have a systemic control of their cancer with erlotinib, and I've treated them once a week with eight erlotinib pills at one time, establishing what I think is a very high blood level over the first 24 hours so that the 30% that gets across the blood-brain barrier is in what would be normally the therapeutic range, and we've seen some objective responses with brain metastases and some responses with meningeal carcinomatosis. So that's anecdotal. It's not something I recommend everyone go out and begin to do, but it's something certainly they can think about. Yeah, we actually had a patient on this series that Mark Sosinski presented with that exact scenario who had carcinomatous meningitis that did respond to this sort of high-dose pulse. Another thing that comes up as long as we're talking about EGFR mutations, Ron, is the whole EML4-ALK story. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what that is and whether or not that would be consideration in a patient like this, particularly if you knew she had an EGFR mutation. Well, the EML4-ALK translocation is a newly identified dominant acting oncogene that occurs in overall about 5 to 7% of patients with lung cancer. Now, it may be expressed a little more commonly in patients who are non-smoking patients with adenocarcinoma. It may be up around 10 to 12%. The importance is that there's a new oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor that was designed to be a MET inhibitor, but that is also a potent inhibitor of EML4-ALK translocation, where patients will have a rapid major objective response Within just a few weeks of starting treatment with that oral agent, this will be the subject of the paper on the plenary session at ASCO this year. And I think it falls in line with this continuing story of identifying the dominant activating oncogenic mutation in patients with a cancer, in this case lung cancer, and having therapy that specifically targets the mutation. If it's an EGFR mutation, then we're talking about an EGFR tyrosine kinase inhibitor that just happens to hit the mutated site specifically. I would not look for EML for ALK translocation in someone who has had an EGFR mutation. It's a different form of lung cancer. 
But I think going forward, this is a story that's going to repeat itself in lung cancer and in other cancers. We see this with the BCR ABLE translocation and CML treated with imatinib. We see it with the mutations in gastrointestinal stromal tumors treated with imatinib. We've seen it in patients with beta-RAF mutations, the V600E mutation that is identified in about 60% of patients with melanoma, that a specific targeted drug for that mutation can produce objective responses in about 70% of patients. So this continuing story in oncology. You know, when you see you know, some of those data have already been presented and, you know, the waterfall plots, et cetera, and hear about clinical useful responses, you might want to think about, well, could I get my patient this? So, for example, you have a non-smoking patient who doesn't have an EGFR mutation. If Bob had a patient like that, is there any way he could get this test done and maybe get the drug? Right now, the only way that I know of doing that is to find one of the investigators in the EML4 ALK randomized trials, make the referral. They can do the testing. If you go through the math, a non-smoking patient with adenocarcinoma who does not have an EGFR mutation, the chances of having an EML4 ALK translocation is somewhere in the range of around 20%. So that's pretty significant for a treatment that may be successful. I think that we need to go through some clinical trial reformation in this country to try to get these products into the marketplace as soon as possible. Is that something you've been aware of, Bob, this eml 4 ALK story? To an extent. I don't know that much about it, but we do have actually a clinical trial nearby at the University of California, Irvine. They are doing it, and I have tested for it unsuccessfully in terms of getting a positive result, but the testing is available. So, you know, it is an opportunity. We can get patients on the trial.